Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. How are social studies teachers talking with students about this time in history? Coming up, we hear from a high school teacher about the questions young people are asking. And we talk to Amanda Taub from the New York Times about the violence seen in Washington and what it means for our democracy. First, President Trump has made history as the first president to be impeached twice. The U.S. House voted 232 to 197 to impeach Trump for inciting an insurrection against the government on January 6th when he encouraged a mob to go to the U.S. Capitol while Congress gathered to certify the Electoral College count. So what happens now? Joining us on Zoom is Ross Garber, a political investigations and impeachment lawyer who practices in both Connecticut and Washington, D.C. He also teaches political investigations law at Tulane Law School. Ross, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks, Lucy. So it's interesting times that we're in. The last time President Trump was impeached, they impeached him on two charges, this time just one, um, because of, as I mentioned, uh, they see them, him be responsible for inciting this riot and also repeatedly lying about the election, uh, telling uh, supporters to, quote, fight like hell. Uh, so when we look at the Constitution, it says the president can be impeached for treason, bribery or other high crimes and misdemeanors. But talk about this uh, in the context of how this applies in this situation, Ross. Yeah. So, I mean, impeachments, as we know, are incredibly rare. Only two other presidents in history have been impeached. Uh, there's never been a president who's been removed. So, they, I mean, all of this stuff related to impeachment is is always history. Um, you know, this is particularly historic. President Trump will be the first president to be impeached twice. So that in itself is historic. And, and kind of where does this fit in? Um, you know, there is that phrase, treason, bribery, and high crimes and misdemeanors. In impeachments, there's often this discussion about, well, you know, what the president or what this judge or what this official did was bad, but was it really a high crime or misdemeanor? You know, the way this article of impeachment was drafted was intended to take that off the table. Uh, the president is charged with willfully inciting a violent insurrection against the United States government. I don't think you're going to have anybody argue, anybody, that if the president did that, that is impeachable conduct. That is a high crime or a misdemeanor. I think they, they're they taking that off the table. Then the question becomes, well, did he do that? Is that really what he did? So looking at the exact words that he used uh, in those comments to uh, the crowd that was gathered on that day, Ross. Yeah. So, yeah, lo looking at the exact words that he used, but then I think also looking at the context, what happened around that, mm -hmm. 
uh, we're going to see a lot more, I think, come out about any communications that the president or his people had or didn't have with uh, with those who actually committed the the riot. And then I think interestingly also, you know, what the president said as the riot was happening or didn't say, and then what he said afterward. Because, you know, we are at kind of the intersection of, you know, this, you know, riotous conduct, uh, this, this very violent conduct and the occupation of the Capitol building, but also this notion of free speech. And I think that's where you're going to hear a lot of the kind of factual debate. The president's supporters are going to say, wait a minute, what he was doing was, you know, he was engaged in free speech. He was engaged in, you know, protected, you know, First Amendment activity. Uh, and and on the other side, people will say, well, yeah, but there is a line and courts have drawn the line and said that when you're when you're inciting, you know, an insurrection, inciting a riot, well, that's different. And I think what we're going to see is a lot more information come out. And, and, you know, at this point, I honestly don't know which way it's going to break, but I think more information is going to come out about this. So when we think about, I mentioned also uh, Congress members talking about the president repeatedly lying about their election results, saying that they were fraudulent. I believe the article also mentions that call to the Georgia Secretary of State. So can you talk about how that relates to this charge? Yeah. So, uh, so again, I think what we're going to focus on is, uh, you know, we know that at the at the the kind of key conduct here, the key issue is that uh, there was a you know violent occupation of the Capitol building, and you know potentially efforts to to you know kidnap and and kill uh, public officials. And the question is going to be, well, you know, did the president's words, you know, knowingly or intentionally cause that to happen? And so, you know, his words, you know, will be viewed within that context. And that's why people are saying, well, you know, when the, if the president knew, the president knew that he didn't win the election and was desperate to try to still nevertheless hold on to power and as part of that encouraged his supporters to go out and you know occupy the capitol building engage in this violence well that's the that's the conduct that's being charged in the impeachment there's evidence of that people are going to look at at, for example the call to the georgia uh, officials and say well you know, there, that's evidence. That's evidence that he knew he didn't win the election and he was nevertheless trying to pressure people, desperately pressure people to find votes. Now, he's going to have a, a different interpretation of that, but that's that's where that's going to fit in. You're hearing Ross Garber here on Where We Live talking about the impeachment process as President Trump has been impeached for the second time just days before he is slated to leave office. You can join our conversation if you have a question about how this process moves forward, 888-720-9677. Ross is a political investigations and impeachment lawyer, and he teaches political investigations law at Tulane Law School. So talk about the process moving forward because there is so little time before the transfer of power, Ross, how does this second impeachment move forward in the Senate? 
Yeah, so there was some question about whether there could be a trial before the president leaves office. Uh, and without getting too deep into the the nuance of it, um, it looks like that's not going to happen. Um, under the Senate rules, uh, the soonest a trial would start is, you know, is basically inauguration day. And so, uh, so the first kind of interesting question is, well, can you have a trial of a president after he leaves office? And, uh, and, and what you're starting to see is some of the president's supporters, uh, Senator Tom Cotton, Senator Lindsey Graham, saying, well, no, you can't try a president uh, you can't, uh, on an impeachment offense after he leaves office. That's impermissible. Other people disagree with that. And so I think that's going to be the first thing to look at. And there is precedent for doing that. There's there's disagreement about whether you can, but there's precedent for doing it. Uh, Ulysses S. Grant's uh, Secretary of War was impeached uh, and convicted. Excuse me, he was impeached and tried, but then acquitted by the Senate after he left office. He, uh, you know, he he knew he was going to be impeached. He knew he was going to be convicted, and he you know ran in, submitted his resignation, you know, broke down in tears and thought he'd avoided you know, that consequence. Congress said, well, we really don't care. And they went ahead and impeached him and tried him anyway. And the Senate considered whether they could do this, whether they could try him after he left office. The Senate concluded that he could. But, um, you know, that this is going to be an issue for this Senate to decide. They need not follow that precedent. It's, it's totally up to them. So, you know, in terms of the process, I I expect what's going to happen. And unfortunately, now we're kind of all impeachment experts because we've seen it happen, even though it's it's rare, um, is that the, the House delivers the articles of impeachment to the Senate. The Senate takes them. Uh, and there's a, a bunch of ceremony around that. Uh, and then uh, and then the the trial process starts and it's going to be up to the Senate to decide how that process looks. Remember in the last trial, there were no witnesses who testified. Uh, the Senate decided that they didn't want to hear witnesses. Maybe they will this time, maybe not. Uh, but you know, one other interesting issue is who presides. Uh, normally, in an impeachment trial of, a, of judges and other officials, which are most of the impeachment uh, trials, uh, the presiding offices, officer is either the vice president. Uh, who constitutionally is the presiding officer of the Senate or the president pro tem. Uh, in the trial of a president, the Constitution says the chief justice of the United States presides. Well, who presides in the case of a former president? Unclear. So we might see Vice President Kamal Harris uh, as the presiding officer here. We might see the chief justice, but it's one of many issues the Senate's going to have to face. Many Americans have been wondering if President Trump will pardon himself. How does that play into a, a potential Senate trial, Ross? Yeah, so it, it's going to be very interesting to see. Uh, the Constitution gives the president very broad pardon powers. It doesn't say whether he can pardon himself or not. Um, and and it's, it's an issue that's been debated. No president's ever tried it before. The last time it was really contemplated was during Watergate with President Nixon. And the Department of Justice wrote a memo saying essentially, no, a president can't pardon himself. 
that would be akin to being your own judge, which in our kind of, you know, common law system, we all know you can't do. So the Department of Justice said you can't do that. But that, again, it's not binding. Ultimately, the way it would get tested is if the president pardoned himself, then uh, there would be a uh, then then, you know, there might be a prosecution and then it would get tested in court. That's how it's tested. And the way it fits in is that might provide more gasoline were he to do that for the senators to convict him. It's also possible the House could impeach him a third time uh, when the framers, you know, came up with the pardon power. Some of them said, well, wait a minute. This is so broad. It gives the president so much power. A president could use it corruptly. Uh, and others said, well, except you've got the impeachment power to check the president and make sure he doesn't do that. And so maybe we see another impeachment or maybe that just really angers a bunch of senators and and makes folks more likely to convict him. And that threshold to convict uh, is two thirds. And this is also a new Senate that would be, again, looking and, and running this trial against uh, then former President uh, Donald Trump. Can you talk about, I mean, in your career, you've represented uh, four Republican governors facing impeachment, including here in Connecticut, John Rowland. What will be the strategy that President Trump's lawyers will pursue in this Senate trial? Yeah, so I think what's going to wind up happening, and you know, interestingly, in most impeachments uh, of presidents, and I say most, there haven't been that many, but you've had the involvement of White House counsels. So the, this one, the president's not going to have the benefit of White House counsel, and it's unclear who's going to represent him. But I think what we're so we're, we're we're speculating on what his defenses might be. I think a couple of places to look. One is that argument that I made before. I think we're going to see that. Uh, that the Senate doesn't have authority to convict or try a former president. We're going to see a lot of focus there. Second, um, I think what we're going to see is the president's people saying, uh, again, this is, this is, they'll say protected first amendment speech. He didn't knowingly, willfully, intentionally incite this riot. And, and we're seeing the president sort of suggest that defense now and in support, I think what they'll say is he was pretty much just saying what he always says. And uh, and there was no reason, he, he would say, to believe that uh, these people would riot, would occupy the Capitol. And in fact, they'll point to the fact that law enforcement actually, you know, the experts, the FBI, the Secret Service, they didn't think there was a substantial threat. And so they didn't have the building fortified. And his people will say, what do you want from him? He's just... Trump being Trump. And so I think I think you're going to see that uh, that also. But, you know, there's still a lot of time for all of these things to, to play out in its politics. And it's it's all very fluid. And it muddies up the, the first days of President-elect Joe Biden's uh, time in office when there are uh, many nominations that the Senate needs to consider, Ross. Yeah, for sure. And And one of the things that's been proposed, though, is that the Senate, the Senate spent half a day, you know, doing the trial and then half a day doing confirmation stuff. You know, we'll, we'll see if that works out. It was also suggested, although I think now rejected, that uh, the Senate would wait 100 days to do the trial. It seems like they're, they're more likely to jump right on it and try to split their time.
We've heard from House Democrats, even uh, members of our Connecticut delegation, saying that this move to impeach President Trump a second time is needed to show accountability. And I'm just curious when we think about um, you know what happens after January 20th. There's also the question of you know to prevent. Donald Trump from running again. And so how will that question be considered in this new Senate, Ross? Yeah, so it's a great question. Uh, the way it's it's most likely to come up is that in the impeachment trial, uh, there in the Constitution, there's this notion of disqualification from office as a potential consequence of conviction after an impeachment. And it's been used three times before. It's rarely used. Uh, but I think that's one of the things that that the senators will uh, will look at, and the process will be uh, that there'll be a vote on whether or not to convict. That takes two thirds, and then there'll be a vote on whether or not to disqualify the president from holding office in the future, and that is likely to just be by a majority vote. And you know, some I'll just you know some have have argued that. The presidency isn't among the offices under the constitutional language you can be disqualified from. I I disagree with that, uh, but you know you can expect Trump to to raise that argument too, and if he really wants to run in twenty twenty four, to litigate that, and it'll be court battles too. But I think that's what we're going to see: a vote on whether to convict by two thirds, and then a vote on whether to disqualify majority vote. That's Ross Garber, a political investigations and impeachment lawyer, also teaches political investigations law at Tulane Law School in New Orleans. Ross, thank you so much. It was great to be with you. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. After the break, we talk about lessons we can learn from other democracies that have been attacked. You can join our conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, broadcasting remotely. We just talked impeachment, and while Americans wait to see how that proceeds in the U.S. Senate, attention is on the days leading up to Inauguration Day. Security has tightened at the U.S. Capitol, but leaders are also worried about the potential for violence at state capitals nationwide. Now, what lessons can we take from attacks on democracies around the globe to better understand our current moment? Joining us now on Zoom is Amanda Taub. She's a news columnist for the New York Times interpreter column and newsletter. Amanda, welcome back to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So I wanted to start at the word coup because we've heard lawmakers using this term to describe what happened on January 26th. And I just heard uh, Representative McGovern from Massachusetts using the word a coup uh, during uh, the House debate yesterday. You wrote about uh, what happened as was as serious as a coup, but it's not necessarily the right term. Explain why not. So I called a lot of experts who study coups and they were really uniform in their assessment. What they said was, this is as serious an attack on democracy as a coup would be, but that 
the reason to be careful with the technical definition of coup or not coup is that that tells you what kind of defenses are needed against this particular type of action. So coups, um, if you're kind of looking at the technical definition, they rely on a threat of force, either from the actual military or from some sort of um, well-organized armed group that is trying to actually seize power. And that wasn't what we saw here. This was a violent attack, but it wasn't perpetrated by the military. It wasn't perpetrated, you know, it, we see evidence coming out now that a lot of the people who participated in it were members of militias, but this wasn't an effort by a militia group to seize power in the sense of a coup. And the reason that that matters is that it means a different group of people are the ones who have the most potential to stop this or allow it to continue. And the um, researchers who I spoke to said that they really think that political elites rather than military elites are the ones who we should be focused on. So, you know, Mitch McConnell, not the Joint Chiefs, basically. You also wrote that we know more about how to stop coups than, quote, anti-democratic actions. So describe the anti-democratic actions that you're talking about that we've seen in uh, this last four years. So um, this is something that has been a trend all over the world for the last couple of decades, which is that the way that authoritarianism sets in is not through a coup, which tends to be over in just a few hours. Only about half of them succeed. They're violent and dangerous and very dramatic, but in some ways they are not as much of a threat as the slower process of authoritarianization that we've seen in countries including Russia, Turkey, Venezuela, in which a leader first comes to power through democratic elections, um, but then once they're in office, they systematically dismantle both the legal checks on their own power and the norms um, that and institutions that limit it. So here in the United States, we have not reached the level of those countries that I just mentioned, but there has been a fairly consistent <laughs> dismantling of political norms, a shift towards kind of playing political hardball, going to the absolute kind of extent of the law. And also, I think, a lot of testing of the legal waters of how far the government can go in violating what were previously assumed to be pretty sacrosanct individual rights. Um, the example I always think of is when government lawyers got up and said that um, there was no constitutional requirement to provide detained immigrants, including children, with soap in order to meet basic constitutional standards of safety and to avoid violating the Eighth Amendment. Um, and so all of these have been kind of a steady expansion of government powers, particularly for the presidency, and a steady erosion of the things that used to be a check on it. When we look and we think about backsliding and norms, when we hear the president continuing to elevate this conspiracy that the election was fraudulent, uh, does that fall into this category? Absolutely. And I think that one thing that's really important that can get lost in this debate is 
how far norms had to be not just eroded, but smashed and how far the kind of, you know, the the things that used to be the kind of invisible guardrails on democracy had to be destroyed before something like that could happen. Um, because to make that possible, it's not just that you need a president who is willing to engage in the kind of um, inflammatory rhetoric that we saw from the president, you know, literally calling on his supporters to march to the Capitol last week. But you also need a political party that is no longer in the business of limiting and punishing its members who engage in that sort of thing. I think that becomes particularly obvious when you look at um, a lot of the behavior of the down ballot candidates this last election um, and um, candidates themselves who have been elected. Um, I think, you know, the there are a lot of kind of somewhat invisible checks on political extremism. Um, and when those go away, they're very difficult to replace with uh, legal remedies like impeachment. We're seeing right now how hard it is to actually implement impeachment if it gets to that point. You're hearing Amanda Taub here on Zoom on Where We Live, news columnist for the New York Times, interpreter column and newsletter, as we talk about the lessons our country can learn when democracies are attacked. And to better understand our current moment, you can share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Before I talk about the role of elites, Amanda, we mentioned the role of the military in coups. And I wanted to just bring up that the Joint Chiefs of Staff sent out a force-wide letter condemning the riot at the Capitol and saying, Joe Biden is president-elect. I'm quoting here, as service members, we must embody the values and ideals of the nation. We support and defend the Constitution. Any act to disrupt the constitutional process is not only against our traditions, values, and oath, it is against the law. What is the significance of this statement from leadership? Again, reiterating to rank and file that the U.S. military men and women swear the oath to the Constitution and not to individual leaders. I think it was really important. I think, first of all, the fact that they had to send a letter um, like that in the first place shows how dangerous the situation overall that we're in could be. Um, you know, this is not the kind of thing that our military normally feels the need to weigh in on. Um, but I think that if you do look at coups um, and um, what makes them succeed or fail, one thing that is usually crucial to success is having early support from elites. Um, and so when you have a group of military leaders coming out this way saying, we do not support anything that would look anything like a coup, um, it's a good indication to people who might be hoping that the military would come out on their side, might be hoping that if something were to happen, um, they would somehow, you know, back up the insurrectionists rather than, um, you know, allow Biden to take office. It's a very clear message that that's not going to happen. Um, and I think that it is just, it's impossible to overstate how much that kind of thing can matter. Um, because so much of what makes coups succeed or fail is whether people think they're going to succeed or fail. And if you have such senior people who have command so much respect and power coming out and saying it's not going to succeed, it's a very clear signal to those who might be kind of wondering which way to jump, um, that they shouldn't jump towards insurrection. So I think it's, it's very positive in that sense. Um, I'm glad that they did it. But it's really quite shocking that they felt that they had to.
I mentioned the role of elites. I wanted to point to a tweet that you sent out the other day. Again, the uh, what you've been learning from political scientists about the role elites play in whether strongmen and dictators get ousted. When we see a group of Republicans in the House voting to impeach Donald Trump, uh, talk about uh, the, how you're seeing uh, this shift now. Yeah, so this is something that has come up um, in my reporting for years and years, as I've reported on authoritarian and strongman leaders all over the world. Um, the researchers who I've spoken to who study when those kind of regimes fall have just been absolutely unanimous that it happens when crucial elites abandon the leader and start backing either removal or the opposition or both. Um, and who those elites are varies from country to country and situation to situation. It could be the military, um, it could be business elites, it could be the leaders of political parties. Um, but you can usually identify who really matters and who is really important. Um, in the United States, I thought it was really instructive that in the last few days, we not only had Liz Cheney vote in favor of impeachment, she's somebody who is very influential within the Republican Party, um, and you know, make a very forceful statement about why she was doing so. Um, but also Mitch McConnell telegraphing very clearly that he is considering it. He hasn't, you know, he hasn't said that he will vote in favor of impeachment and he's not making it any, he's certainly not speeding it along. Um, but anyone who has watched his career knows how to, that he knows how to block things in the Senate when he wants to. Um, and that's not happening. So I see those as very clear public signals, not just that Trump has lost their support, but that they are signaling to other members of the Republican Party that they will remain members in good standing, at least with the kind of Cheney and McConnell wing, um, if they vote for impeachment, which is really new. That is not what we have seen um, throughout Trump's presidential administration. Um, for the most part, the party has supported him much more than that. It, it, one thing about watching this play out at the U.S. Capitol last week, you know, it was chilling to see that uh, some there were, uh, you know, showing up with zip ties, others chanting for the death of Vice President Pence and others. When we think about this level of violence that was demonstrated by some in the Trump base, does it matter that if you know he loses the backing of elites that you know there's people in the base that see nothing wrong with this backsliding that we've seen and the things that he has said amanda um i think it matters um i think both elements of that matter a great deal so um it is true that the traditional political elites do not carry as much sway right now in the republican party as is ordinarily true um all that being said, it's also true that, you know, every leader has some elites who really matter. Um, and, you know, I think Putin is a great example of this. He has had a kind of close group of elites in both politics and business um, who have supported him over the years. And he kind of has cycled people out as they become less useful to him or threats to him and cycled new people in. Um, he has been exceptionally successful at playing that game. Um, Trump has not. And I think it is worth remembering that even though, you know, he has a lot of power over the party, particularly this insurgent far right wing of the party, um, 
people like McConnell are still going to be in office in a few weeks and Trump isn't. But because people like McConnell and the traditional kind of party leadership don't have as much control and influence over that wing of the party, there's so much more potential for violence and chaos than there would otherwise be. You know, I think it used to be that political parties had so much more power over things like fundraising and TV time and messaging. Um, they had so much more ability to control what their members um, said and did publicly. And that's no longer the case. And so for all that I think elites are still really important, I think um, they are less powerful in the United States now than they previously were. And it's not clear how much power they have over this particular violent group. We know that there is a split in our country where Americans either see what happened at the Capitol as an attack on democracy, or they don't. And they don't think that uh, this rises to the occasion of seeing the current president removed from office. But I'm wondering when you look at examples from other countries, Amanda, about how to to survive and heal from these types of events, what lessons can we take? Um, you know, my last job, I had the title of senior sadness correspondent because my articles were always such a bummer. So I'm not <laughs> sure surviving and healing is really my area of expertise. Um, I think one thing to say is that it turns out that in many, many countries, um, people are not as invested in democracy when they think it's not bringing them the things that they want. And those things are not necessarily financial. They could be, you know, to do with social status um, or political power or other things like that. And so healing from attacks on democracy or democratic backsliding or anything else like that, um, I think requires a reckoning that that is not how a lot of people will see the objective. Um, they might say that they do, but I think people have very different ideas of what a you know, functional and effective government looks like, and that makes it that much harder. Um, that being said, I think, you know, there are a lot of hopeful things in the United States. Um, you know, we have a long tradition of, you know, public kind of affiliation with the ideals of democracy. Um, and also, I think that there's some very kind of research, there's some research which is very heartening to me, which is that, um, the longer a country has been democratic and the more democratic it has been, the less likely it is that their democratic backsliding becomes, um, you know, as permanent and as severe. So um, in essence, you get kind of democratic forward sliding again um, because the institutions exist. People remember how they're supposed to work and what it looks like when they do. Um, and there's sort of a muscle memory there um, for the parts of it that used to work and the parts of it that can be strengthened and rebuilt. Um, and so I think that is probably the best place to start and the best place to focus on is look for the places that have been damaged and eroded um, and think about how they could be restored to what they once were. Before we let you go, Amanda, I understand that you are based overseas in London. I am curious how the English press is talking about what's happening right now in the U.S. Um, I have been interested to see 
how quickly they seemed to jump to the conclusion that this was a complete catastrophe. Um, so I remember on Wednesday night, um, the so the the attack on the Capitol happened in late evening UK time. And so um, it was covered on the evening news shows here, um, but people were, you know, it, was, it was a new story. They were still trying to figure out what was going on. And one report said that if the protesters had managed to um, burn the, the vote tallies that showed that Biden had won, that Biden wouldn't have been able to take office. And that's, you know, that's not the case. They have backups, it would have been okay. Um, but I think it was an example to me of how fragile American democracy looks from the outside, that people think that we might be kind of one successful attack and one technicality away from, you know, not being able to seat the next president. Um, and I think that that is a perspective that we should pay attention to. Um, it can be hard to see fragility from the inside. Amanda Taub, it's always a pleasure to hear your perspective. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Amanda Taub, new news columnist for the New York Times, interpreter column and newsletter. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. After the break, we're going to talk to a teacher about the conversations he's having with students about this time in our nation's history. You can join us too. How are you talking to your kids about recent events? Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Now, how are teachers talking with students about this time in history? We hear from a high school social studies teacher now about the questions young people are asking. David Basso is a social studies teacher at Berlin High School and the 2012 Connecticut Teacher of the Year. David, welcome to the show. Good morning, Lucy. Thank you for having me. I'm curious, after you were watching or hearing about the events at the U.S. Capitol January 6th, did you do anything different in preparing for your social studies class the next day? Uh, definitely. I knew that I had to create space uh, for students to ask questions, to uh, share their concerns, to share their perspectives, um, and, and communicating with a lot of fellow teachers and seeing um, what teachers are writing on social media. Um, I know uh, an, an awful lot of teachers um, felt that this was an important time um, to make sure that, that students had a place to, to turn to and, again, ask questions and share their thoughts and to share uh, their perspectives about um, what they had seen and what they have learning and, and to put it in a, a particular uh, context uh, that makes sense for them. I understand you've been teaching for many years, not the first time our country has faced a crisis. And I'm curious, when you went into class the next day, what were some of the questions your students were asking? And, and how did you draw on those um, other moments when you were a teacher in a classroom as we were observing a uh, crisis? Right. Uh, first of all, I told my students that uh, in my many years of teaching, um, there have been a handful of days that were particularly difficult. And I specifically mentioned 9-11 uh, and I specifically mentioned uh, the Sandy Hook tragedy um, the day after George Floyd was murdered. Um, and so 
you know, teachers who have been at this for a while have unfortunately a number of those experiences. Um, but at the same time, as, as unfortunate as that is, we also recognize that's incredibly important to, to be a, a source of stability and consistency uh, for our students, that our, our classroom is a sanctuary uh, in some ways. So it, it's a teachable moment. And, um, and I open it up and you know, what sort of questions do you have and uh, what concerns do you have? And, and there are a lot of questions along the lines of you know, how did this happen and then why did this happen? Uh, a lot of my uh, younger students um, haven't uh, taken civics yet. Uh, they'll take it next year, but um, you know, issues related to the electoral college process, just to put it again in that, in that broader uh, political, historical, cultural context. Um, but, you know, questions like, you know, why are people surprised? So I think some students definitely have a sense of um, how these issues have been um, building over the years. And um, it wasn't just a, a, an overnight uh, situation. that It was an escalation over the years. Um, and, you know, and some of those heartbreaking questions, like uh, particularly in the uh, the broader landscape of a pandemic and a lot of stress and anxiety a lot of people are feeling, but you know, a question like, when does this all end? Um, students, uh, th this has been a reality that a lot of these anxieties have been a reality for a lot of students um, over these last few years. I think that when we have these kinds of conversations, it's something that you want to do in person. And with the pandemic and teaching remotely, how does that impact these kinds of conversations for you, David? Yeah, that's definitely been a, a major uh, challenge. Uh, we are, in my district, we are hybrid. And so, you know, and actually last week we were full remote after uh, the, the break. Um, so it was a little bit difficult to uh, have a, a more you know, wide-ranging, versatile discussion. And so um, we used in the Zoom chat box. We had students unmute themselves. Uh, I had them uh, fill out a Google form. I'd gotten some ideas from what I had seen online. So I, I posed questions like, um, what should a leader do? in a situation like this, or what should a leader say in a situation like this? Um, how will this moment be remembered uh, in history? Um, how will you talk about this to your children or your grandchildren or your own students? Uh, and so, you know, in, on a related note, of course, uh, you know, teachers are finding many different innovative ways to, uh, to approach um, traditional ways of instruction uh, a lot differently this year. Um, and so that's been a challenge. But, but nevertheless, of course, the, the concern remains real and it remains salient. And so, again, we, we have to find ways to make sure that students know that um, you know, teachers are going to remain a source of, uh, again, that stability and consistency and um, that we are people that they can turn to with questions and concerns. I'm talking with David Basso, a social studies teacher at Berlin High School. He was a 2012 Connecticut Teacher of the Year. As we find out how he is talking with his students about this moment in time. You know, I'm a parent, David, and I keep thinking about the last few years. It just seems there's just one thing after another. It is a turbulent time to be a child or young person in this country. And it's challenging to try to come up with answers to certain questions that young people may have. Um, I don't think that the time that I was growing up that I was 
thinking and having to respond to these kinds of events and wondering about, you know, worried about safety. And this is the reality that a lot of young people are, are facing. And I'm curious when we think about the norms and acceptable behavior that we expect from children, is it difficult when they see grown adults not holding themselves to the same standards that we expect from young people? Absolutely. And and the uh, conversations and some of the written responses from students, uh, you know, they use words like, like they were embarrassed. Um, you know, how, how could a how could a leader not, you know, how could a leader act this way? Um, so I, I think they they see um, this political landscape in, in a lot of turmoil and they might even be experiencing some of this you know, more immediately by um, maybe the, in their household or their relatives or maybe what they're seeing on social media. Um, and so, you know, to a certain extent, I think teachers, uh, as much as we uh, in many, many cases need to remain neutral, um, at the same time, I think it's important for students to know where we stand on issues of, of goodness and human decency and morality. Uh, and so in many ways, uh, teachers are the models. And um, when there's all this turmoil going on um, outside the classroom, uh, again, in many, many cases, uh, schools are a safe haven. And um, you know, we, we talk, there's a lot of rhetoric, of course, about um, schools and, and what we should be doing or what we're not doing. And um, you know, teachers are absolutely, and, and in particular this year, going way out of their way um, to ensure some degree of normal, normalcy and uh, some degree of uh, stability for our students. And you look at any school's mission statement and it, it has ideals like empathy and compassion and, and critical thinking. And, and we uh, are the ones who, who lead the way on that. And um, you know, teachers um, more and more, uh, and really over the years have gotten um, a lot of criticism, um, but in reality, when, when you take a look at so much of what we're doing, uh, and in particular in this, in this time period and in, in recent days, um, we, we are a light uh, for many of our students. David, you mentioned uh, rhetoric, and I'm curious when we talk, when we, and the importance of, you said, teachers having to be neutral, but you can also speak out when we're talking about moral decency and questions of humanity. When you're having these discussions that are steeped in politics, are you hearing from parents who may not like these kinds of conversations in your classroom? And, and how do you respond? How does your administration respond? Well, first and foremost, um, you know, from the from day one, um, you know, teachers work hard at building a, a climate in their classroom that's that's safe and welcoming um, uh, for all students and to understand for students to understand that. You know, there are going to be multiple perspectives and we're going to be respectful of perspectives. Um, we, you know, many, many teachers have a great deal of support um, from their administration and um, we are very lucky in, in those situations. Um, and I think we can have uh, deeper conversations and in some cases um, intense debates uh, that's, that are grounded in the facts and grounded in evidence. Um, and we can, for example, talk about you know, why there are conspiracy theories, but we can't entertain conspiracy theories. Um, I think we, it's important for us to take a look at you know, how do we examine fake news? How do we ask the, the right questions? We should always be asking questions. 
um, and to realize that a lot of these issues have many nuances and they're, they're awfully complex and they're not always either or. And, that, and that's something that a lot of students start to realize um, as they learn more about the world around them. Um, but again, I, I mean, there's, there's absolutely a certain deal of objectivity um, that needs to be in place. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's similar to if, if I see a student uh, being bullied, for example, and I don't do anything about it because I want to remain neutral um, we all know that that would be you know, morally reprehensible. And so uh, we have to point out uh, situations when, when it's happening um, on the grander scale as well, as well. And, and to really uh, make students know um, that, that we are going to land on the side of, of, of goodness. And again, this idea of human decency and, and the, the greater good of humanity. David, we have under a minute, but I have to ask, you teach high schoolers, they're on the verge of being able to vote. Are they feeling optimistic about the future? I think, you know, it's, it's a mixed bag. I think um, students are pretty worn down, given how the last few years have gone, and in particular this year. Um, at the same time, we've seen a lot of student activism in recent years um, with the uh, March for Our Lives and uh, climate change and uh, students are involved in uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. And so I, I think a lot of students are recognizing that um, it's, it's going to be, um, that they will be involved, that there's a need to be active, that the, the world is changing. And um, there's a certain degree of, of hope, I think, that they have, particularly seeing a lot of the individuals who have become involved in politics, um, how the demographics of our, uh, our political uh, situation is changing. And I think they're growing more hopeful as they see that. David Basso, again, is a social studies teacher at Berlin High School, a 2012 Connecticut Teacher of the Year. David, thank you for talking with me. Thank you very much for having me. This is Where We Live, today's show, produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. You can learn more about Where We Live. Just download the show on your favorite podcast app. Be back tomorrow.